welcome to Graphic Policy Radio, the podcast where comics and politics meet. The show for geeks who want to make sure that Shuri has any last traces of the heart-shaped herb DNA on lockdown before Nestle uses this whole Infinity War crossover thing as a pretext to steal it, patent it, and sell it back at about a million-point markup. I am your host, Ilana Levin, a.k.a. Ilana Brooklyn. Thank you for joining us today. Our topic is Infinity Gauntlet and the comics behind the Avengers Infinity War movie. Look, I haven't seen an Avengers Infinity War movie yet either. I'm not in Los Angeles. But Graphic Policy Radio is going on a journey to the center of the soul gem to absorb the legendary comics that inspired Marvel's movies, cosmic storylines. And today we'll focus on the comics of Jim Starlin, the artist and writer who co-created Thanos, and who was the source of much of Marvel's psychedelic 70s cosmic operas, including characters like Gamera and Drax. Uh, this is about as close as graphic policy is getting to a 420 episode this year. I, I was tempted to attempt to DJ it for you all, but that was going to get distracting for me. So if you feel the need to listen to music, I'm going to suggest you put on Hawkwinds in Search of Space really quietly in the background. Um, joining me as my guest tonight is James Hancock. He is the host of Wrong Real, a podcast for hardcore cinephiles, which tackles everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. These, of course, are things that I'm a big fan of myself, so I definitely recommend the show. It's really like a wonderful film podcast for listening to uh, film critics just geek out about both contemporary and classic stuff. Um, and it's not like in the nerd specific focus, it's films of all different kinds and all different genres. Um, yeah, and uh, James had me on his show as a guest a little while back, which was great. And I'm really happy to have him joining with me tonight because he is a serious fan of Jim Starlin's work. And he's going to be catching us up on all the spaced out glory that uh, some of which has made it to the screen, some of which may yet make it to the screen. We shall see this week. Uh, we'll be talking about things like who the hell is Adam Warlock, what is a soul gem, uh, the true nature of Jim Starlin's figure of death, and uh, all this and more. So, James, welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. I sincerely appreciate it. I'm having a little bit of an anxiety attack speaking live instead of my usual casual kind of record and edit and post later. But you were absolutely awesome on our Wrong Real episode about the Wicker Man, and we will have to definitely get you back on in the near future. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I I know it's a different format. You know, I I think, you know, you have a really good audio setup. So you're 80 to 90 percent ahead of any of the other guests that we have on the show from that front. So I want to start off by just talking about Jim Starlin. Who who is Jim Starlin uh, as the the writer and the artist that that we're talking about today? I mean, first and foremost, he's one of the key comic book creators from my own childhood where I read his stuff for many, many years before I even realized that he had written and drawn so many of the stories that I loved. Like early 80s, my older brother and I picked up these special editions, which are basically like compilations of different uh, issues of Warlock that basically gave us the entire story from start to finish, but also like – Death of Captain Marvel or like over in the pages of Batman, A Death in the Family, even up through Infinity Gauntlet, which came out when I was in high school. I was reading all this Jim Starlin material and just for whatever reason was paying almost no attention to who was writing and drawing a lot of this stuff. Granted, he didn't draw Infinity mm-hmm. Gauntlet, but he drew a lot of his early stuff. But then one day I just had like an aha moment, maybe when I was like 17 or 18, and I started to connect the dots and I was like, wow, this guy really – it's almost like you know sometimes movies are like the soundtrack of our, of our childhood. Like this guy was almost – 
like the cosmic, epic, just uh, larger-than-life storytelling that gave so much meaning and impact to my childhood. And I, you know, as a little kid, I probably grasped maybe 1% of what he's doing in the pages of Warlock. But the art and the storytelling and the emotion and the melodrama are so compelling that it just – I kept I kept revisiting it years and years and years, um, year after year, and even now at 41, I reread his entire arc on Warlock the other night, and I was still spellbound by what this guy cooked up in his 20s, you know, 40 years ago. I mean, Marvel was such a different time back in the 70s, and I feel like of the new guard that came after Kirby and Ditko and Lee and Strank and those guys, like the guys that really dominated the 60s, I feel like in the 70s with like the Bronze Age. I can't think of a comic book creator at Marvel that I like more than Jim Starlin. I mean, I've, re- I've read a lot of Roy Thomas, but he seems a little mm-hmm. square sometimes in comparison to Jim Starlin. I feel like Jim Starlin represented that psychedelic kind of anti-war, even though he had Vietnam War experiences himself. But he was definitely sure. the, new gu- the new guard that came in to kind of usher in a new era. And it's interesting seeing how much friction he had with Marvel at that time. But the stories speak for themselves. And yet here we are 40 years later, and we're seeing these giant mega-budget movies still picking and choosing from uh, their favorite ideas that he came, he cooked up decades ago. Yeah, it's really, you know, I, it's really incredible how many of the sort of character devices and dynamics that Starlin invented are still played with today. Um, I think anybody following Marvel is really aware of the character Thanos right now, That and Thanos is the main bad guy, the sort of wrinkly purple grape at the center of Avengers Infinity War. And um, the, you know, you see uh, Thanos and you see the Infinity Gauntlet imagery on everything. It's like a brand that's enormous along with the comics themselves. And, and Thanos as a character came from um, Jim Starlin's work uh, on Iron Man, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he was first introduced there in the uh, in the seventies, and a lot of people have rightly pointed out some of the similarities between him and Darkseid, and how basically it was like Marvel's attempt at doing some of the new gods, but kind of do more successfully. And I think you know it's fair. I mean, obviously Jim Starlin as a, as an artist and as a storyteller was picking and choosing from a variety of influences. Like you were pointing out on Twitter the other day, that some of the influences from Michael Moorcock. And I think it's, uh-huh. it's it's totally justified. But he found a way to stir all these ingredients together, and he made them, in my opinion, totally his own. And what I really love is how he took characters like Captain Marvel and Adam Warlock, who had been created by other people, and then made them these like soul searching, like psychedelic philosophers, like, you know, racked with angst and guilt and suicidal thoughts. And he made them so interesting. I love when you see a, a storyteller come in and take a character that's not doing well and then make it totally their own, like with James Robinson and Starman in the nineties mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. like that, that I, I always find incredibly exciting, but also Jim Starlin, he gave us Gamora and he gave us, I mean, he just gave, he gave us Drax the Destroyer. He gave us all these characters that are now beloved by millions of people all over the world. Yeah, I think, like, you know, I'm the world's biggest Jack Kirby fan, obviously. I have, like, an entire arm of Jack Kirby tattoos, et cetera. But I I really think that, like, you know, while Kirby is a big influence on Jim Starlin, Kirby was still approaching these things as a member of an older generation looking at youth culture who, like, loved and respected youth culture but wasn't part of it. He was, like, an older man. And, you know, what – aesthetically there's such big you know similarities between Darkseid and Thanos but as a character like no ultimately Darkseid is 
straight up, like, Darkseid is Richard Nixon, basically. At least Richard Nixon as we knew him to be in the year 1972. More things were learned about him after the fact. And Thanos is not, Thanos is, is hyper-emotional. Thanos <laughs> is, you know, he's completely, like, but the name Thanos is taken from Thanatos. Thanatos meaning the death drive in Freudian psychoanalysis. He's like this embodiment of a very, of like this male toxic masculinity and id. He wants to kill the world because he's horny. Like that's the thing. That's the central part of, of his story is why does Thanos want to kill the world? It's because he's got a crush on death who he, he views as being this like woman in a, in a robe who's also sort of a skeleton. And, um, and that's really his motivation. And that's a very different character than, than Darkseid. Um, and it's a very interesting character too. Uh, yeah. So I, I so you know I, I think we, you do you don't get Jim Starlin without Kirby first, but it's not just a recycling of Kirby. I feel yeah, like and he'd be the first to admit that he loved Ditko and he loved Kirby. So yeah, mm-hmm. I mean I think he would be flattered to hear that people are comparing him to those guys. And yeah, I think he's just the next step in the artistic lineage of comic books. And I feel like he saw what they were doing. But when you look at his own style. It's very dynamic in terms of the movement, much like Kirby, but it's got a, a very interesting attention to detail, and I love his musculature, and it always seems like, whether it's Captain Marvel or Adam Warlock, it's almost like idealized versions of Jim Starlin as he looked at that time, and it, what I love is how personal the stuff is. Like As much as I love and adore Kirby, Kirby's one of the all-time greats. I don't necessarily always feel like where he's like unveiling his soul, but like Jim Starlin will talk about how the death of Captain Marvel was his way of dealing with his father's death. Or he'll use his comics as a form of therapy, exploring certain ideas like mm-hmm. the Church of Universal Truth, which is one of the first major antagonists that Warlock encounters and during Jim Strong's run was him wrestling with his Catholic upbringing. So I love how intensely personal and emotional his stories can be. I also think aesthetically, like you see, you know, uh, the Infinity Gauntlet comic, which we'll be talking about in greater detail later, was actually drawn by Perez. But I feel like Perez and started and, and Ron Lim because it started with Perez yeah. and then Ron Lim took over a couple issues in. Oh, okay, gotcha. I, I feel like the two of them have these tendencies to do with these very small, packed-in figures. They're very detailed and they have tons of tiny little panels. Um, their 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 whole page composition is is very different from anything you see today, but also very different from what Kirby was doing at the same time as well. Um, you know, I, the art is incredibly psychedelic and hugely appealing. I, I, I had been wanting to read Jim Starlin's stuff uh, for a long time and just hadn't had an excuse to really dig in till now. And thank you for being, you know, my guest to come and join and give me an excuse to do that. Uh, because you know, the art, like you see such a heavy influence from 60s psychedelic poster art. Uh, you know, and again, that drew from Kirby. This is sort of coming out the other end of it. This is like as it's being processed by somebody who is actually part of the 60s counterculture in some way because he's of that generation, you know, as opposed to Kirby who is, you know, like a little bit. I mean, Kirby got to start with like a 40 or 40. Kirby has been around for a exactly. long time. He's a seasoned veteran by the time you get to the 70s. He's probably in his 50s, I'm assuming. And, yeah. uh, it's funny when people talk a lot about like the cosmic side of the Marvel universe, and obviously James Gunn has very successfully introduced millions of people to that cosmic side. And Marvel had plenty of cosmic stories before Jim Starlin. I mean, hell, Fantastic Four number one is kind of quote unquote a cosmic 
Marvel Comics story because they go up into space, get hit by cosmic rays, come back, and they're mutated. Like, that's our first mm-hmm. taste of Marvel Comic. <laughs> and then, of course, yeah. you've got, like, Neil Adams and Roy Thomas doing, like, the Kree-Scroll War in the late 60s and tons of great stuff with, like, John Buscema and the pages of Silver Surfer. But I feel like Jim Starlin's the first person who really made it psychedelic. Like, when you see Captain Marvel gaining his cosmic awareness and going from kind of a, a rigid Cree soldier into this cosmically aware person who's in tune with the universe, and that is some super duper kind of hippie drug field stuff. Which, for whatever reason, I just abs- I really responded to that to that character growing up. I remember my brother got his tonsils out, and my mom brought him a bunch of comics. One of which was the Death of Captain Marvel, which I still think is probably the best art Jim Starlin ever created. It's just jaw dropping stuff. Mm-hmm. But from that point on, I was just absolutely hooked on Jim Starlin style. Well, that cover, the cover of um, Captain Marvel uh, dying in the arms of the figure of death, completely looking like a like Michelangelo's Pieta, is just one of the most striking pieces of comic book art. Like it's incredibly iconic. If you've seen it, you remember it forever. Um, and that was actually done as the first graphic Marvel graphic novel. That was just its own complete. Absolutely. Uh, People throw that term around so casually. Graphic novel drives me crazy, but I feel like I own a lot of trade paperbacks. I love and adore my trade paperbacks, but they're not all graphic novels. But obviously, uh, yeah, Barnes and Noble (laughs) tries to make comic books sound less like comics by calling them graphic novels. I'm like, no, Death of Captain Marvel, that's a graphic novel. It says so on the cover, but it's a different thing. Yeah, yeah. So this was a piece that was actually intended to be read as a book uniformly and and that was you know that was one of Jim Starlin's things that he was just an innovator in doing um do you know much about sort of like how he got his start in comics and has he spoken a lot about about that he has spoken about it in a few interviews I saw one where he said that um he came he got very lucky in terms of his timing because I think his first two comics that he sold or two covers that he sold were to DC right after he was finishing up his career as a photographer in the army but hmm. with the Marvel, Roy Thomas was expanding the lineup from eight comics a month to 20 comics a month as editor-in-chief, and he had way too much work to do. And he said basically they were hiring anybody who could hold a pencil, and Jim Sterling <laughs> said, well, he barely qualified for that, but he was one of the first guys in line. He was just a rabid comic book connoisseur at this point. And so, yeah, it was mm-hmm. a combination of having some talent and some ability, but also really being in the right place at the right time. And as so long as Roy Thomas – Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. He was say, so he definitely was part of that '70s expansion that Marvel did. That hundred like, percent. Yeah, part of that generation, which is cool. I really do love his art aesthetically. I just think it's really cool looking. Um, he's definitely an artist who has done great things with what are called zip tones. I don't know if people who haven't done cartooning are familiar with them, but um, they used to make. Uh, you can probably still buy them somewhere. Some people call them screen tones, but like. It's a little, it's a texture transfer sheet that you rub on paper and it sort of has a, it's a background that just gets, golly, how do I even explain them? They're like a, they're like a rub on transfer that you can use to not have to actually do all your own cross hatching or dots or textures by hand. And um, you'll recognize them when you see them because they, they're used in a lot of, you know, on a lot of uh, comic strips in the newspapers Prior to the prior to the computer age, um, and Starlin did such cool things with these dots and shapes repeating in the different layers. Uh, I, I really feel like he is the master of the uh, chart pack zip tone um, because it, it's like a little layer of 
op art, you know, 60s optical art kind of happening in the background of a lot of the different space-oriented images that he did. Gotcha. Yeah, uh, I, mean, I think I think I, I digested maybe 10% of that, but it just, it, just <laughs> it makes me all the more impressed by what he was able to do as an artist. Yeah, it's it, 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 I, I would say he used a kind of technology uh, that had been used as a time saver. He really used it to a really great creative effect. Okay, um, gotcha. And really, and really used it. Really used it. This technical tool to make things as trippy as humanly possible. Um, that would be my attempt to explain this a little bit more tightly. So, um, so t- let's talk a little, little bit about Adam Warlock, who is not a character we've seen in the Marvel Universe yet, but... Uh, well, we know it's coming, because like the post-credit stinger of yep. uh, Guardians Volume 2, we saw that she was... You know, we see Adam Warlock in his little regenerative cocoon, and yeah, Adam Warlock, he was introduced by Stanley and Jack Kirby, and then some other guys like Gil Kane and uh, Roy Thomas took a crack at him, and so he definitely had a lot of uh, parents in his birth, but... I don't think any. I mean, as much as I love and adore the artwork in which the character first appears, it wasn't until Starling got his hands on him where he suddenly was this suicidal, angst-ridden, like Avenger of the week. Like he's such a crazy mix of conflicting emotions. And I, like you mentioned earlier, how Thanos is kind of a, he's a little bit emo. Adam Warlock's a little emo as well. Like something tells me Jim Starling's a very passionate, emotional guy in his twenties <laughs> because. Thanos and uh, Adam Warlock are just very melodramatic, and I love how Adam Warlock will be – he has this soul gem, and he it's like the ultimate weapon. He can consume the souls of his enemies if he allows it to do so, but he then has to face the consequences of the fact that he's basically committed murder for the sake of a greater good, oftentimes protecting the weak or the defenseless, and he just cannot cope with some of the things, some of the moral choices he's having to make. And over the course of a few issues, we watch has – Everything he loves and adores, his closest friends are all taken from him. They're all killed and murdered by Thanos, and eventually by the time he gets to the end of his journey, he welcomes its end. Like He is a suicidal superhero who ends up killing himself as a way of severing a timeline so that he will not become this ultimate universal evil, the Magus running the Church of Universal Truth. I mean it is mind-bending, insane stuff. But I just every time I read it, I, I just there's something glorious about watching your most hated enemy, like someone like Thanos and Adam Warlock and Gamora teaming up to take on an even greater evil, the Magus. So like the Magus, he wants to basically rule the universe. Thanos wants to just murder half of it. So it's like, what's the lesser of the two evils? <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that the, the villain for you know like Adam Warlock's key villain is himself as an adult, basically. Absolutely. So he's purple with an afro. Future self. Yeah, also, like, your evil self is color-shifted and has Richard Simmons' haircut, basically. Yeah, it's a sad so if, you, if you see me with Richard Simmons' haircut but purple, then you'll know that it's evil me from the future trying to establish universal role of religion. Um, yeah, I, I – so the soul gem, which is the, the stone that's in Adam Warlock's forehead, um, is one of the infinity gems. And that whole concept is, uh, all, all goes back to Jim Starlin. And the, the soul gem – that sucks people's souls. They describe as being vampiric, and he sucks their souls out. It helps them strengthen him, and that's one of the things where I was like, "Aha!" From here, we see the work of Michael Moorcock, who is one of my favorite um, sci-fi and fantasy writers. He's, He's awesome. like Mister British '60s hippie science fiction, basically. Um, he like basically played in Hawkins, like the poet laureate of the space rock band Hawkwind. 
and he really changed the 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 sword and sorcery genre. Like no one had really done what he'd done. Um, he really put it into like a sixties hippie ethos and mindset. And what's famous from the character is uh, his character Elric of Melbourne, aka the Eternal Warrior, is he has a sword um, that he use that he uses to suck the souls of the people he kills with it. And those souls strengthen him. And he's tortured by having to do this, but he has to do it to keep his strength up. And they're both these incredibly, both Adam Warlock and Elric are these incredibly Byronic figures. They, they, sometimes some of the fantasy artists have depicted Elric having a kind of golden skin color. Um, and both he and, and, and obviously nobody is more golden and orange than, than Adam Warlock himself. Uh, he's been um, surfing for the last... 1,000 years, just getting the ultimate bronze, even skin tone. <laughs> it's pretty glorious. <laughs> well, it's also interesting, you know, it's funny, though, because you mentioned him being a character that has a lot of different dads, and in the comics, he was invented by a crew of scientists, and then, like, burst out of a birthing pod. So, you have this character that's also, like, entirely divorced from any sort of, like, female anatomy or influences. Like, he's literally from a pod, um, and he has all these different male creators who created him. I think it's kind of an interesting... Yeah, his origin's bizarre. It's like, it's like he got retconned several times over, and then, of course, he got basically reinvented as like a messianic Jesus figure. But I like him as the, you know, the, the guilt-wrecked Avenger, you know, soaring around the universe. It just, I just love these characters who are constantly exploring and discovering universal horrors, and he's overcoming incredible evils, but, like, he's chipping away at his soul in the process. And then it ends so beautifully. It's almost like a shame that they brought him back because I remember at the end of a Marvel two and one, uh-huh. what is that issue? It is a annual number two. He's basically like reunited with actually maybe that might even in the issue beforehand. Yes, yeah, it's Avengers annual number seven where after he dies and he goes into the gym, he's reunited with all the people that he's murdered and they have this like basically like a harmonious kind of like hippie love fest. And <laughs> this is incredible uh-huh. journey that he's actually able to live in harmony with his most hated enemies. And that's such an incredible journey. But going back to the whole Elric uh, comparison, what I love most about Elric was how he didn't have the constitution or the body to handle the magic that he knew how to wield. And I always found that so, so fascinating. He comes from this ancient race of just the ultimate spellcasters, but he can't handle it. And it's almost like he hates the sword Stormbringer as much as he needs it because without it, he just falls to pieces. But every time he uses his yeah. power, he's tortured by the, uh, by the thoughts of what he's done. And yeah, when you see with Adam Warlock, every once in a while, like he and Gamora and Thanos are having this giant battle against 25,000 black knights that are going to just totally overwhelm them. And whenever Th- Thanos is basically pushing his buttons and for- coercing, coercing him into you know, using the gym, and when he finally unleashes like warlock is like just this unstoppable, unbridled force of power. It's just, and that makes it so satisfying because he's always keeping himself in check until he really just cuts loose. You're like, wow, he really is an intimidating, powerful dude, but he kind of keeps it bottled up for most of the time. Mm-hmm. Actually, let's talk about Gamora for a second. I, you know, reading her origin as told through the Adam Warlock comics, it seems like the reason that Than that Thanos shows her to raise as his uh, as his child apprentice, etc., is you know he Thanos shows up at her home planet and he's killing everybody, and she is the person who is most upset and traumatized by this. So he chooses her to make her the most deadly warrior in the galaxy, the most deadly assassin. And I think it's a cool kind of statement that 
the person who is the most emotionally affected by the suffering of their people is the person who turns into a weapon. So her emotional intensity is why Thanos sees her as a potentially, you know, lethal person who we can use in his quest. Um, and that's cool because I think a lot of the time people sort of write off characters like, oh, if they're overly emotional, then they're not going to be able to be successful or emotion is weak. And, you know, when he turns her into as a killer, but it's an interesting commentary, I think. Um, yeah, and she's such and, a badass and, and I character. Like I love how my, people have embraced her in the movies because I remember as a kid seeing when Adam Warlock comes to her and we find out that Thanos has betrayed and murdered her after all when he no longer has use for her. I was six when I was reading this stuff, and I had, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't even really have context, but it was a really dramatic, powerful moment. I think Jim Starr probably the first comic creator who really introduced me to the idea of death in comics, whether it's death of Captain Marvel or the death of Pip or the death of Gamora. This is some really heavy, dark stuff, and you really feel that connection between Adam Warlock and Gamora when finally when she's about to die, he just – that's the thing. He always – he puts people out of their misery by absorbing them to the soul gym so they're always a part of them, whether they're enemy or a loved one. And that's even more eerie how he keeps the emotions and the memories of the personalities of his victims and his friends with them once they're gone. Mm. But yeah, yeah Gamora, yeah. total badass, super lethal, and until Infinity Gauntlet came back. She'd kind of dropped off the map for like 10 years, but then, of course, after Infinity Gauntlet, you had like the Infinity – I think it was the Council, I believe was the follow-up that had all the um, – uh, what was it? Oh, Infinity Watch, sorry. Infinity Watch where you had basically yeah. Adam Warlock and Drax and uh, Gamora and Pip, and they all basically separated the gems between them. They had this incredible burden and responsibility. And then, of course, she just stuck around, and she kept getting resurrected for like Guardians of the Galaxy like long before the movie came out. And yeah, here we are, 2018, and she's just this total badass Marvel icon. But I think most people have no idea just how obscure the character was for a very, very long time, except for the, the true hardcore Marvel nerds. Yeah, for real. They really did pluck her out of nowhere. Um, but, but with good reason to do so, because, yeah, like she has a really interesting origin and um, has an interesting look as well, which I think oh, is she helpful. looks totally badass. Yeah. yeah, and that, that just shows if Gamora can be a movie star, you can basically pluck any Z-grade Marvel character. Like, I mean, everybody was talking about when Iron Man came out in 2008. Like, who's this guy, Iron Man? Of course, <laughs> comic fans knew who he was, but he was considered to the public at large to be a relatively obscure character. It's like, no, no, that's not obscure. Drax the Destroyer, that's an obscure <laughs> character. And now he's yeah. beloved by people all around the world. Yeah, I, I – um... I'm always a big fan of the D-list characters. I think there's so much more interesting and creative things you can you can do with them. What, what one of the uh, actually one of the characters I definitely want us to talk a little bit about is Death. Like you were saying, Death is a thing that Starlin really does show in his comics in ways that a lot of earlier writers probably couldn't. And Starlin literally personified her. Right? He has this this entity of Death, which. She sometimes looks like a a woman in a in a long purple robe, and sometimes she looks like a skeleton in a long purple robe. We we totally have an ongoing joke about like, uh, yes, the skeleton with breasts, because somehow <laughs> somehow like even when she's in skeleton form, they're like, yes, she still has breasts. I've, I, it never even occurred to me. Forbid, yeah, God I've been looking forbid, at those images for, for thirty seven you know? <laughs> years, and it never even occurred to me. But yeah, when she's in skeleton mode, she still has. Um, She's still, so she's still stacked. It's, it's because, God forbid, for one second, any female body not be sexualized. But, like, what I think is funny about death is, I, and I, I don't know what her first 
official in Jim Starlin portrayal type appearance of her is. I'm assuming it's in the death of Captain Marvel. No, Cap- but, it's in um, the pages of Captain Marvel. Before he did Warlock, death does appear because like those, his pages of Captain Marvel were kind of a dry run for Infinity War. But if you go back yeah. to like Captain Marvel to like 25 through 34, death appears a few times in there. Does she talk with anybody at any point or she's nope. silent then as well? Yeah, she always communicates either non-verbally, just with like menacing stares, or through an intermediary speaking on her behalf. So this is what I love. Okay, so death is this female, so they embody. Sorry, so death is this unknowable entity that we all encounter at the end of life. This unfathomable being who who manifests herself in the eyes of the characters of the story as being this beautiful woman slash beautiful skeleton, and she doesn't say anything. And what wh- why does uh, Thanos want her? He, he loves her. He wants everything for her, but she will not interact with him. Like, she will not interact with him. She is having none of it. So he goes and he says, I'm going to go and kill half the world to make Death love me. And Death's just like, I didn't even ask for that. I did not communicate any of this with you. I am, like, just being this universal being over here. And Thanos cannot help himself but just treat her like she's just a regular woman where he's just going to woo by doing whatever magic combination of dance steps she's required. But that's not how people work, and that's certainly not how cosmic entities work. So, like, Thanos yeah, especially in Infinity Gauntlet, where basically it's like six issues of Thanos having a giant cosmic-level temper tantrum trying to get her attention. Yep. yep, exactly, exactly. He's this giant baby demanding her attention. But Thanos basically is an MRA. Like, if he was wearing casual wear, he would have a little fedora, and he would be, like, trying to neg you at a bar. Like... You, there's actual stuff that Thanos does, in fact, in Infinity Gauntlet, in his interactions with death, that is like straight out of pickup artist handbooks. And I just can't get over how, like, that, that's a specific kind of villain. And I, I you know, I don't think that, that that was exactly the language that people were using to talk about these characteristics when any of this stuff was made, of course. But, but reading it now, it's like, oh my God, Thanos is this, like, terrible, shitty pickup artist. And death is just trying to go about her business of being. This incredibly powerful being, and he cannot take. Just to defend the fans here for a second, though, in the pages of Silver Surfer, when Jim Starlin, after he came back from DC, he'd been doing all this incredible stuff with Batman, Death in the Family, and the KG Beast. But when he came back, his before Infinity Gauntlet, he had a really cool run on Silver Surfer with Ron Lim, and the very first issue on Jim Starlin's return. Death looks at the universe and sees that there are more people alive now than at any other point in history, and she regards that as a cosmic imbalance. So she actually mm-hmm. raises Thanos from the dead to address that cosmic imbalance. However, rather than be a servant of death and go about kind of systematically eliminating solar systems or killing planets, like you know, just normal your, your normal kind of uh, mass murder, he decides <laughs> to deceive her. And he goes about collecting the six Infinity Gems, or they're called the gems in the comics, the stones in the movies. And that's when you get this uh, two-issue arc called Thanos Quest where he hunts down the various elders of the universe and either through deception or in single combat plucks all their gems from them until he's able to assemble the gauntlet. And he does so at the end of Thanos Quest Two. But Death regards that as a huge betrayal because she was not looking for an equal or even a superior or a lover. She was looking for a servant who would look go out and yep. murder the fuck out of people. And so that ultimate betrayal by Thanos is something she can never forgive. And we see even in the pages of Infinity Gauntlet when all the various um, kind of uh, cosmic entities of the universe like you know chaos and order and eternity and all these – and Galactus and all these characters are gangpiling on, on – dogpiling on top of Thanos. Death 
joins in and he's like it's like the ultimate betrayal he's like oh even you my love and he's <laughs> his obsession with death is kind of adorable and sad all once because it's like a teenage crush but if you had zero respect for life and limitless power with which to kind of slam doors behind you well that's yeah I mean, that's exactly what i'm saying like that's that's what he's the supervillain of. He's like the he's like the MRA supervillain. I, I really like saying I really liked um, uh, the one you just mentioned, which I actually had not read until you recommended it. Uh, Thanos. Oh, uh, Thanos Quest. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I really liked Thanos Quest. I definitely recommend that to folks. I hadn't read it before, but it was definitely a cool read. Um, and the art is was is is Lim, right? And yes, I, Ron I, uh, Lim. Yeah, Ron Lim did and, Silver Surfer, and, and Thanos Quest, worked. and half of Infinity Gauntlet. Yeah, and it's all it's all really psychedelic and wonderful and evocative, and also you know all of these comics that we're talking about have a great density of text and don't but they don't feel like it's a Claremontian wall of purple text prose. Like it's definitely a much textier and therefore longer read than contemporary comics. I think people who are used to modern stuff and all the decompression that happens will be like. Amazed how long. Oh, you tweeted them. something amazing, girl. You tweeted that like retelling of Warlock's origin story from like the first page, and it's yes. like more text than like in War and Peace. Like, whoa, how do they fit all that text in the one page and actually still have art? But somehow they mm-hmm. found a way to make it work. <laughs> they definitely found a way to make it work. But yeah, I definitely I liked I, I did I did really enjoy that that, that comic, even though I hadn't really seen it before. Um, yeah, I, I I think that like. That I, I, we don't really know, you know, how Thanos is going to have a relationship with with death, or or what he'll be saying in those ways in the movie. But I would really love to sort of see this character like going around and assuming that he knows what she wants, and that's not at all what she's well, communicating to him. I'm hoping that they about Kate Blanchett and just have Hella basically bring oh, somebody yeah. from the from the back bench who we already know and love and adore and you could have Hella almost kind of be the Marvel Cinematic Universe's version of death or who I mean I feel like if you ignore his love affair with death it's kind of ignoring the fundamental thing that drives the character and every character needs yeah. to have something that makes them tick like Drax his obsession with killing Thanos it was is what makes him tick everybody's got something that drives them and if you take away his obsession with death Thanos is basically just yet another big, strong guy who like, can blast people, and he has some weird stuff in his history, like the fact that like he murdered his mother, and he's you know he's he's got some darkness, but he'll just seem like a dark side light without his obsession with death. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I'm I'm totally into this idea. I love it. I love it. Well, Kevin Feige um, said that every time they were wondering how they should depict Thanos in the movies, he said basically, and he's said this in multiple interviews that Jim Starlin was his north star. That they would, you know, they go vertical back to the material and just look at the depictions of Thanos in the work of Jim Starlin. Plenty of other people have adap- adapted Jan- uh, Thanos, like Jason Aaron did a really cool, really dark, savage Thanos uh, limited series a couple of years ago, which I absolutely loved. Um, I think the artist's name is uh, Simone Bianchi, if I'm saying it correctly. Anyway, the artwork was uh-huh. stunning. So it's not just a Jim Starlin world when it comes to Thanos, but obviously Jim Starlin's the creator most closely affiliated with them. So yeah, it seems like Kevin Feige really loves that original source material. Yeah, yeah, I, I you know his his Drax is very different, but um, but that I think I like the solution that you're that you're that you're putting out there for how to because it's true. Yeah, you don't really have 
if Thanos isn't out for death, then it's just not Thanos. That's like his, like death is a personified entity, and that's just that's just what he's there for. Um, but I also should make sure that everyone knows that while death, you know, rejects Thanos, death, death likes Deadpool. I I I really enjoy the character death that that death in the comics like actually does have a romance with Deadpool, um, <laughs> and that's why Deadpool Deadpool can't die. Thanos curses him that he can't die, so they can never truly be together. But um, they they uh, have some of that in the like 1999 Deadpool series, and um, that actually was my introduction to the characters. Um, oh, cool! Yeah, my introduction that, was Death yeah. of Captain Marvel, where at the very end, where he says, "I no longer need the illusion." And, he, and I show you, you tweeted about this earlier today when he wipes yeah. his hand across her face, and the illusion of a, an alluring woman is replaced with the 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 skull. And then they have a little smooch as Thanos looks on. But obviously, at that point, Thanos is make when Thanos appeared in Death of Captain Marvel. He was locked in stone from his confrontation with his previous confrontation with Adam Warlock, so he was basically dead. And I just love how you see that is the ultimate perfect role for Thanos is basically almost like one of the four horsemen, but for death. And so I think that's one of the most harmonious depictions of death and Thanos working together as they are guiding Captain Marvel from this life into the next, not as a dying crippled person of cancer, as a, a, as a, a warrior born in a, in, in a manner that is fitting one of the greatest warriors that the universe has ever seen. And I just love seeing that relationship between Captain Marvel, Thanos, and death in those final pages. But then, of course, yeah, Thanos screws it all up when he comes back from the dead. Just like a Thanos. Um, Just like a Thanos. We're going to have to make that a, a figure of speech. Just like a Thanos. I think um, – so let's just talk a little bit about the gauntlet itself. Um, it has the, 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 the Infinity Stones in them, and there's, there, you know, there's been a million and one online articles that anyone can go and read to see, oh, the Tesseract is this stone, the Time Stone is the one – that's in Doctor Strange's Mad Alien and everything else. Like these stones have been, like have been the MacGuffin of practically every Marvel movie that we've seen. Um, and they're all going to be united in this crossover. It's a really brilliant thing. This has been laced together, and you can go read that on any freaking comics website. You don't need me to tell you about that. But where? But 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 let's think about like how did this come together in in the comics and in the source material because. Um, I think that in the comics, the first stone of those stones is the soul stone that you see in Warlock's forehead. Um, like, what is sort of is the background on those? Excuse me, on those Ooh, gems the in the comics. Background. It seems like well, the the origin of them has changed, and their importance seems to have changed. Like, I've definitely seen panels in comics early on where they're all depicted as green and they're just called like the infinity gems or the soul gems and things like that. Like you can definitely tell that they were like, it wasn't like in the early seventies, suddenly Jim Starlin had this idea. I'm going to create these six different uh, infinity stones. And then you know it's going to be this giant payoff 20 years down the road. But it seems like it was just one of the things that evolved organically, but where Adam Warlock got the soul stone that I do not know because in Jim Starlin's first issue with Warlock, which is uh, Strange Tales 178, we dive right into the action with somebody running from the Church of Universal Truth looking for uh-huh. protection, and she encounters Adam Warlock, and he uses it uh, to not only suck the souls out of people that have killed her, but to raise her temporarily from the, from the dead in order to uh, have her speak about where she came from. But where he actually got it, I'm embarrassed to admit, 
I do not know. The rest of them, That's okay. I mean, were all attached to the elders of the universe. And the elders of the universe were like the gardener and the in-betweener and champion and grandmaster. And some of these, I mean, Marvel's got thousands of these cosmic entities <laughs> to draw upon. But they're all basically as old as the universe, and they all had one. And so, But they all kind of have like a different power set or different approach to things. Like Grandmaster loves to put together contests. We saw Jeff Goldblum depict a version of the Grandmaster in Ragnarok. Quite different from the comics, but still very much enjoyable. But yeah, but Thanos basically yeah hunts them all down one at a time, and either through deceit or through power or just through whatever means are at his disposal, just wrests these gems from them one at a time. And they all seem to be hanging out on people's foreheads in the middle of their foreheads. So it's definitely oh, they look super cool. Sort of third eye. It's sort of it's sort of like a, it referencing the sort of third eye. Eastern mysticism as recycled through the American consciousness. Um, I, I actually let's talk about the in-betweener because I I I literally laughed out loud when I heard Megas being like, "I will set the in-betweener on you." And yeah, it's definitely got sexual connotations that did not occur to me at six, but in-betweener. Oh, yeah, it's a. It's I, a didn't, I I didn't think about that. I oh, sorry, then I shows where my mind is. No, I'm going to finish my point, and then please make yours, because this is interesting. I was like, oh, my God, is this like like an internal joke about the Beyonder? And I immediately looked it up, and the in-betweener predates the Beyonder by about, like, 10 years. Oh, yeah, big time, yeah. Yeah, But, like, oh, my God, the in-betweener. Like, that's just hilarious. Oh, no, the in-betweener. Sorry. I thought uh, you were just like really the double entendre, like in between butt cheeks or in between breasts, or whatever oh. the case would be, like the in betweener. And so, yeah, I just no. I, I have a dirty mind. I apologize. Works, it's, it's fine. It works too. I mean, I, I don't really know where you. It's just figures. It's like fifty percent black, fifty percent white, and almost a chest, like a alternate size, like a chest piece. And he barely he just shows up, and then if he touches you, you're trapped in between these states of being, and you'll go mad. But like that name, the in-betweener, is like so freaking hilarious. It's like the most yeah. Silver Age thing. I think that's one of the cool things about these cosmic beings. Like these you know, cosmic like, beings have almost no personality, but they um, they have great looks. Like Galactus looks incredible, and Eternity looks incredible, and I feel like all these great cosmic beings they were cooked up, like you know, or the Living Tribunal, and I just but the in-betweener. He just looks totally badass, and so naturally people are going to be drawn to him and keep using him again and again. But yeah, it's a crucial part of how Adam Warlock transforms from a rampaging Avenger for truth and justice into this genocidal authoritarian maniac head of the universal, uh, the Church of Universal Truth. And yeah, it's one of the things where his confrontation with the in-betweener is going to drive him mad. And the Magus is trying to make sure that that definitely occurs. And of course, Gamora has been sent to try and disrupt that from happening. When Gamora fails, Thanos has to step in. And even then, you ha- that's what leads to obviously – the strange death of Adam Warlock where basically he kills himself in order to prevent himself from ever becoming something else in the future. And it's just, yeah, it's crazy. My, people who like paradoxes, time paradoxes, would just eat that up. I think that's uh, Warlock number 11 where that all goes down, which I think uh-huh. creatively is kind of like the high watermark of the series. But yeah, the in-betweener, it's he looks cool as shit. Issue. I'm sorry? It's a gorgeous issue. It really is. Oh, hell yeah, yeah. absolutely. Because you have Thanos and Magus fighting each other, you know, mano y mano. It's like, you know, these two horrible, horrific beings just throwing down. And, yeah, I, I love that. The villain versus villain or when villains and, and good people have to, uh, to team up. Like Thanos is more than just a mustache-twirling kind of bland – Marvel has a big problem with villains, especially in the movies. I feel like Killmonger uh-huh. and Loki are probably the only two good ones so far. Hopefully Thanos will have some of those – 
you know, will be more multidimensional than your average Marvel villain. Because I feel like if you look at like people like Ronan or Malekith, the villains have been yeah. so disappointing. And I feel like if you're going to live up to the legacy of Thanos, he's got to be, you know, multidimensional. And they really wasted some really good actors on those villains, too. You're like, why would you hire them to be that boring? It's like a very strange, very strange thing. Yeah, I'm ho- I'm really hoping that they do Marvel that. needs uh, some uh, movies yeah. that are just about the villains. If this is about what I said all along, like the reason we love Loki is that we've seen him in Thor one, Thor two, Thor three, and uh, an Avengers movie. So like we know him. Like we need to get to know some of the villains over the course of their own films. Like I would gladly go see, you know, Doctor Doom once Marvel finally concludes the rights acquisition to all the various Fantastic Four and X Men characters over at Fox. If you were to give just Doctor Doom his own solo movie. And that by the time we actually see Doctor Doom interacting with people, we'd be that much more invested. I feel like the charisma of these villains is, is so essential. And then, yeah, it's, it's the big Achilles heel of Marvel. And I think it's one of the reasons people responded so much to Black Panther. Killmonger was fascinating. He was such a badass yeah. villain. And it, it just it, – for me, it's like a James Bond movie. A James Bond movie is crap unless you have a great villain with which to uh, match wits with. And I think the same holds true in Marvel. And guys like Magneto and Doctor Doom and Hela and all these great villains, yeah, you, you need them to be at the top of their game for Marvel to really reach its full potential. You know, I don't know that I think that there needs to be villain-centered Marvel movies, but I definitely think that those are the villains who got – who, who, who people most enjoyed. And, but I feel like Marvel was surprised by the popularity of Loki. Like that was not something they saw coming. So when in the second, it was like in the second round of promotion that they were doing, they started putting Tom Hendelson's character in it, um, figure in the marketing materials more because the fandom was responding to him. And the fandom was responding to him for a combination of actors, including like the actors off screen sort of, charisma and personality and ability to interview well. So I, there was like a lot of different layers that I think went into Loki becoming... Did you ever see Tom Hiddleston tap dancing on Korean television? It's one of the glory, most glorious things I've ever seen. But he's doing That's some exactly talk what show. I mean, yeah. yeah. He's over in South Korea and he gets up and starts tap dancing and it's incredible. And there's another time where he went on some uh, like hip-hop radio station in LA and he started doing like Will Smith rap. Like he's this, I mean, he's got charisma and talent like, you know, that lasts for days. And so, yeah, Tom Hiddleston has definitely played a huge role in the popularity of the character. But at Comic-Con one year, I think it was 2012, maybe, he came out in costume in Hall H to address the crowd and started basically belittling people and calling people names. And it was like Elvis had entered the building. People <laughs> lost their minds. But Marvel needs yeah. more of those charismatic villains like one of my all-time favorite graphic novels is uh dr strange and dr doom team up to try to rescue the soul of dr doom's mother and it was drawn by mike mignola it's just stunning stuff it's all before hellboy but uh, i think it's called tragedy and triumph or triumph and tragedy Uh, i'd have to go through my collection to find the exact name but seeing like a dr strange slash dr doom team up movie from like the mystic and demonic angle like i think that those are opportunities to develop your villains and i just i've always loved the villains but I also think this is a case of Marvel following the fans, and the fans were calling for more of him, and Marvel was like, you're right, we have something on our hands with this, and, like, making, and making more of it, you know? Um, I mean, meanwhile, like, we really have some characters who fans would love to have more to do with and who have been really underdeveloped. I think that perhaps we get uh, sort of more fleshed out. If you could cherry-pick... Um, your Nebula favorite Marvel villain that we have not seen yet, oh. who would you shine a spotlight on? You mean who hasn't been depicted at all in the movie? Hasn't or... depicted at all, like the great untapped potential. Oh my gosh, 
that's a good question. I haven't really thought about that, to be honest. I mean, I, I, um, I really love Submariner, and he's not a bad guy to me, but he's an antagonist for a great Well, it depends upon of, how of much of a temper tantrum he's throwing. Sometimes he's, you yeah. know, he's destroying New York with a tidal wave and sea monsters, and sometimes he's just wooing Sue Storm. And the, yeah, I mean, I, 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 yeah, I fucking love Submariner. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I love Submariner. Like, I would, you know, Submariner is angry with every good, with ev- for ev- with every reason. You know, uh, like we, the, the, the surface dwellers have been destroying his kingdom with our pollution and our sonic on our sonar and everything. So like, yeah, we totally have it coming. And all those random unobtainable blonde women he kidnaps are also totally into it. Like it's very clear. This is a that harsh. Like, Oh no, no I got to go down to Atlantis and hang out with Submariner for a couple of months until my husband yeah. gets his shit together and comes looking for me. Yeah, yeah exactly. That, that like, love yeah, triangle is so incredible. And also Submariner has so been around since like 39 or 40. I think it was Marvel comics. Number He's one. one of the, he is the first superhero for Marvel. Absolutely. He's as old yeah. school as it gets. And just yeah. that weenie bikini that he wears, like I, I hate it when people depict him in like the blue with like the shoulder pads and everything. Like, no, Submariner needs to have a tight green bathing suit that's barely bigger than dental floss. That's his costume. He's got little wings on his feet, and that's all he gets. And he just because he owns it. And as long as you own it and just look like a stud, then you can get away with it. But yeah, it's one of the, right, like, the most right. ridiculous costumes it. of all time. But like the, the public deserves that. You know, there have been there like we we deserve like the green underpants, you know, uni- like costume. Like we, we I would we boycott the movie with anything less than or anything more than the the green anything underpants. Anything more than exactly. <laughs> well, who's who's the uh, who's the not yet? Like I said, he's not a like I said, he's not a victim. He's not a villain. He's an antagonist. But God, I love him. Um. So who who are the uh, who's the missing? Who from the Jim? I should make it narrow it down. Who from the Jim Starlin universe of characters that we haven't seen depicted yet? I mean, we know Adam Warlock is coming, so we'll just say, okay, it's not going to happen. Like, who who do you most want to see depicted in the movies from the Jim Starlin crew? I mean, Still I would love. I mean, obviously, just because he's such a cool character, I think if uh, James Gunn were to fail to bring in Adam Warlock's dark, evil future version of himself, the Magus, I, I always say is it Magus or Magus because I've heard people use the both Magus. ways. I, I say it, Magus, but. You know, I'm not a Latin expert. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I nor, nor am I. In any case, I would love to see James Gunn's read on that. But more importantly, what I'm, I'm desperate to see is that at the end of these two Avengers movies, because obviously we have one coming out in a couple of days and another coming out next year. I'm assuming, obviously, the Infinity Gauntlet will be broken into its various pieces at the end. I think it would be criminal not to have the Soul Gem end up somehow on the forehead of Adam Warlock, even if they end up having to use mm-hmm. it to like to bring him out of his regenerative cocoon. Because much like mm-hmm. with Thanos and his obsession with death, I think Adam Warlock, if he's not racked with guilt, is not Adam Warlock. He needs to have that component where doing something good requires him to also do something evil, making him hate himself. I feel like that's such like the essence of that character. So I hope James Gunn is campaigning very aggressively with Kevin Feige to incorporate the Soul Gem into that third Guardians movie. Well, the, you know, I, I, the other piece is also we have Gamera, who in the comic, not Gamera, sorry, um, Nebula, who in the comics is a really pivotal, pivotal, sorry, character in Infinity Gauntlet. Like Huge. she's one of the major figures, um, and she's just one of the most underdeveloped characters to hit the screen in Marvel. Um, oh, but I have I such a crush that, on her. I, I love and ad- well, I love and adore. She, she Nebula. did a great job. I mean, I think like. Like all like eight, 
seconds of what she of what um, I'm forgetting the actress's name of uh, Karen, Karen Gillan's Gillen. work were great, but it was like eight seconds. Um, yeah, there's a great and, bit in the sequel to Guardians where she's basically like almost kind of throwing her weight around with some of the um, what do you call them like the not the Ravagers and some of the, like the bad guys that have come in yeah. and uh, and taken out uh, Yondu and, and and captured Rocket. But the way these guys are just scared to death of her and the way she will kind of walk through them like swaying her hips back and forth like Karen Gillan's body language is just astonishing. And I really hope she will be a permanent member of the team because I feel like. The team needs to have some outright villains to maintain that uh, kind of outlaw flavor. I know in the comics, the Guardians are much more like, you know, spacefaring, like, you know, noble hearted adventurers. But in the movies, initially, the origin was like, these are outcasts. These are outlaws. They discover each other in jail and they break out. And I think you got to keep that outlaw quality alive and well. And Nebula yeah. is a perfect way to do it. And she just, she looks so damn cool. But yeah, as you mentioned, in Infinity Gauntlet, Thanos. He never really wants to have omnipotence. He just thinks he does. He finally basically becomes one with the universe. He's usurped eternity's place, and he's sitting there just standing there kind of gloating. And Nebula, who's just this gnarled-up corpse who he's been torturing for days. He's been torturing she her. Crap, he's yeah. gauntlet right off his hand and pops it on. And, yeah, she basically is like a, you know, a key player in the rest of the saga. I'm telling you, Thanos is the MRA. Like. He, he, when he brings up, like, he's like, oh, look, this is this woman. She claims she's my granddaughter from the future. I tortured her. See how badass I am. And then she, he's, he's paying no attention to her. He basically is treating her like an inanimate object. And she, is, she outsmarts him for a moment to, get the, her, to, be, to, to have the Infinity Gauntlet. It's, was definitely she does a good thing, thing, too. One thing people overlook, she's always she because of the villain. She brings people back to life. Yeah. But she undoes everything he's done in the last 24 hours because in the Infinity Gauntlet, at one point Thanos, he quite literally has a temper tantrum, and this giant like wave of force emanates out from him, and it's so powerful that it knocks the Earth out of its natural orbit, so it's getting colder and colder. Like Japan sinks below the Pacific Ocean. It's just a total catastrophe. Nebula brings all these superheroes back to life and restores the Earth – basically restores half the universe to life, so while Adam Warlock might – finish the story wearing the Infinity Gauntlet and promises to wield it more wisely, Nebula actually is the one who undoes most of the damage that Thanos has done. And, and, she, and she does it like right away, basically. Yeah. And I think Starlin did, really, did a really cool job of depicting um, how disconcerting it, it was for the people who went through that experience to suddenly be called back to life again and how it makes people be aware of how vulnerable they are and how on the edge it is of the world's end, basically. Um, I thought he did a really cool job with that sequence. Yeah, it, it's glorious stuff. Like, I mean, when it came out, th this was right before I started discovering the idea of event fatigue because starting with probably – Secret Wars and like Mutant Massacre and Inferno, like I was really eating up the 80s events and crossovers and things like that. But the crossovers back then weren't necessarily that big. They wouldn't take over the whole company line in a lot of ways. But, um, you know, I mean, I recognize that Secret Wars 2 absolutely sucked even at age nine. But when Infinity <laughs> Gauntlet came out, the tie ins were pretty cool. I remember there's a great one where the Hulk gets shrunk down to a very small, minuscule size, and he gets sent back to Earth where he has to fight the abomination and things like that. And I was totally eating it up. I mean, it took me a while. basically took until Onslaught and then The Heroes Reborn in the 90s where I basically quit comics for a couple of years. I was in college. I was falling in love with movies, and Marvel was just force-feeding me cardboard covers and holograms and these crappy really events. Yeah. And the, yeah. the product was just miserable, and I feel like 
while the industry was contracting, it totally brought it on itself. And then it was in the mm-hmm. early 2000s that it came back around because I started reading Warren Ellis and Garth Ennis and Grant Morrison yeah. and all these uh, amazing figures. But man, like, but I feel like Infinity Gauntlet, early 90s was right when like X-Men got relaunched and sold 7 million copies and Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man was going crazy and mm-hmm. Image was going crazy. And yeah, Infinity Gauntlet, I was at the perfect age to just eat that shit up with a spoon. I just loved every second of it. Yeah, I think you, you pointed to exactly to it. Like, I, it's, you know, you can have a really awesome crossover and, and um, tie-ins. You just have to have it not be a thing that happens literally every single year. And you have to, you know, have it have a reason that doesn't smell like it's just a question of sales. Like, or one that doesn't roadblock all the other titles. Like what was cool about Secret Wars uh-huh. when it came out? Secret Wars came out, issue number one, and then every other comic in Marvel – flashed forward a year to the aftermath. So while we had to wait a year to see all the different issues of Secret Wars come out, the Marvel Universe just continued. And granted, there were some changes, like Thing was no longer a Fantastic Four, had been replaced by She-Hulk, and Spidey obviously had the black suit. But otherwise, Marvel just was business as usual, so it wasn't like Secret Wars tapped the brakes where every single title got consumed for a year by this giant event. But if you wanted to enjoy uh, Secret Wars, one issue would come out every month, and it was absolutely incredible. I think that's the way to do it. I, what I hate is when all your titles that you love get like overwhelmed and sucked into and destroyed by yeah. these events, and that's when I think people start to resent them. Yeah, I agree. And and just the sheer quantity, I think, of the expectation that things you have to buy. I mean – I was able to understand, you know, what was happening in Thanos Quest and in Infinity Gauntlet without being up to date on everything else that was happening in those series. So, um, yeah, like Jonathan Hickman was probably the only person in the 21st century who's done that stuff really well. Like, I, mean, I really enjoyed his Secret Wars, and I loved pretty much everything from starting with like Fantastic Four through FF, and then on through like uh, New Avengers and Mighty Avengers, up through finally when he quit working at Marvel, but like. He did a great job of creating a sense of an event, but it was like contained within the titles he controlled, mm-hmm. and it wasn't like it was sending up this ripple effect. I mean, granted, like there was like Thor Battleworld, and so there's some Secret Wars tie-ins and things like that, but I feel like you need to have a singular voice or a singular storyteller kind of running the show and let the other storytellers mm-hmm. play in their own sandboxes and not be completely like, I guess – like overwhelmed by one person's vision. Like Brian Michael Bendis used to do that. He would have all these events like Secret Invasion and things like that. And the rest of the company was basically had to be subservient to his vision. And I feel like it's a huge disservice to all those other storytellers. Yeah, I agree. And Secret Invasion was really cool, but it was not cool for all the other books and all the other titles. Yeah. Exactly. I, I, um, I am very full of uh, being done with Bendis now, um, even though I really, really loved his new Avengers you know, when it came out, I think that there was a necessary and shift the aughts, of He cycles. was awesome. Yeah, and the art, Bendis was so cool, and now you, you literally could not pay me to read what he writes. But it, when he was writing, yep. like, Alias and Powers and all this stuff in the early 2000s, I was like, this is the coolest writer ever. I was reading and everything. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you know, you, we were talking about this a little bit before the show began about, you know, there's, there's a moment of passing the torch, really, right? Like, you know, I, I, Jim Starlin has written some comics more recently for Marvel, and I was curious, including like the end of the uni- Marvel Universe series, and I was curious if you had read them and you said you had it because you just felt like his, you know, his, it wasn't really his contemporary stuff wasn't really doing what the other work had achieved. And I, I think that that's true for, for the vast majority of creators. Um, I'm not 
saying that these guys should go and retire, but I'm saying they might want to switch to doing other kinds of comics and other kinds of stories and pass the torch on to the next, to the next generation. You know, Um, yeah. Yeah. So you said that you feel like, Starman had a good like ten year run basically. Star- I think he had like a twenty year run. Like Captain Marvel through okay. Infinity Gauntlet. That's twenty years nearly. I mean like you're talking okay. like seventy three to like ninety one, ninety two. But I was not into Infinity War, his version of it. I was not into Infinity Crusade. But I still have enormous respect and admiration for him. But I know that recently he had some trouble at Marvel because he would periodically come back and do a Thanos story or an Adam Warlock story and would cash in and make some cash on his past reputation. But I just felt like they were ne- never necessarily – they always felt like it was just like these little satellite projects that weren't necessarily part of like the official Marvel continuity. And I just was more concerned with what, say, Jason Aaron or Jonathan Hickman might be doing with Thanos instead. Mm-hmm. But I know that he, there was – uh, some friction recently where he and Alan Davis were working on a Thanos storyline and Alan Davis was still drawing it, but the, all the scripts have been turned in and uh, Jim Starlin felt as if some other people, some other writers and artists at Marvel had basically either ripped off or been influenced by his story ideas and were planning on publishing a different Thanos storyline, not written by Jim Starlin that would be published in advance of Jim Starlin's story, making it look kind of redundant and ridiculous by the time it would reach the shelves. And he was really upset about it, and he spent about a month fighting with the Marvel editorial board. And he was very clear. He said, look, I have no problem with Disney. I have no Marvel, no problem with Marvel Entertainment. Like, we're all, we're all good. Because I know a couple of years ago he was a little bitter that they were taking his ideas for the movies. I think they did cut him a check at some point to put a big yeah. smile on his face. So that he would Which help promote good. these movies. He should be getting it. Like his the intellectual property and creative ideas that he created are making billions of dollars for Disney. They 100%. should be giving him. They should they should give him like a, a couple million dollars at least easily. And I don't know how many millions of dollars they have given him. I don't. I suspect it was not. I hope there are a lot of zeros on that deal. check. I, would, I doubt that they gave him the deal that you or I would think would be fair, given the creative work that he did. But it could be worse. Like, it. was it uh, Siegel and Schuster? You know, back in the, like the late '30s, they sold yep. Superman for 250 bucks. So it's like, oh god. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, management is management, and they're going to steal from people. You know, I, I really hope that he gets as much recognition and financial support as he really deserves, because it's he's. You guys can, can see if you listen to this episode, he has a huge footprint in the Marvel universe. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to think of, like, I mean, like, if you think about, like, some of the ideas, like, Ed Brubaker obviously has ideas that are being used in terms of, like, the Winter Soldier, Stan Lee, of course, a lot of his characters are being used, but it would be interesting to see which of the characters and storylines in the movies that people love, which writers and artists have contributed those, like, which writers and artists does the Marvel Cinematic Universe owe the biggest debt of gratitude to? And I think, I mean, obviously with the Guardians of the Galaxy movies and now Infinity War, clearly Jim Starlin is one of the creators that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is pillaging from or borrowing from most heavily. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely a huge source for them. So as we round out the hour, I mean, do you have specific suggestions for what comics you think are the most essential Jim Starlin reads for folks who want to check out his work? Uh, absolutely, but it's it's a little bit complicated because for whatever reason in the 70s, it wasn't like you would have like 12 issues in a row on a particular title that would tell a complete story. Jim Starlin's narrative weaves in and out of all these different titles because like titles would get canceled or he would like pop on for an issue and then jump to another. But if you follow 
you can follow the chronology. You just have to know in advance what it is. Luckily, a lot of the trade paperbacks just basically grab all the Avengers comics and Iron Man comics and Captain Marvel comics and Warlock comics and Strange Tales comics you need in order to get the complete story. But first and foremost, just buy the Marvel Masterworks collection of Warlock. It basically starts with Strange Tales 178 through 181. Then you get Warlock 9 to 15. Then you get Marvel Team up 55, Avengers Annual 7, and Marvel 2 and 1 Annual number 2. It's ridiculous that you have to read all those different titles to get the story, but that is the Jim Starlin, Adam Warlock story. So it gets my highest possible recommendation uh, earlier than that, which is not as good, but still very worthwhile. The Captain Marvel story is 25 to 34, but also you have to read Iron Man 55 and Avengers 125 if you're going to get the complete story. Definitely check out The Death of Captain Marvel. I think it's the most gorgeous art that Jim Starlin ever created. And then you really got to dig into his Silver Surfer run from 34 to 38 in the early 90s uh, – or sorry, late 80s. Followed by Thanos uh-huh. Quest, followed by Infinity Gauntlet 1 to 6. I think if you do that whole run, you're going to have an absolute blast. And if you still need more Jim Starlin goodness in your life, swing over to the, you know, swing over to uh, DC and check out Death in the Family or check out uh, Batman's Encounters with the KG Beast. They're totally badass, super cool. And I had no idea Jim Starlin basically had jumped ship from Marvel and gone over to DC for as long as he had until much later in my life. But his Batman stories are absolutely killer. Yeah, yeah. I think he invented, uh, he was a co-creator, I guess, of Mongol, who's like an amazing Superman. Hell yeah. Who's like another dark side ripoff. He does a lot of dark side ripoffs, but Mongol Mongol in um, one of my all-time favorite issues is... um, uh, what do you what's it, what do you get for the man who has everything? For the, for it's the a great, man who has everything, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's written it's, by Alan Moore Alan and drawn Moore. by Dave Gibbons. But they took yeah. the character that Jim Starlin created, and yeah, I think in terms of standalone issues, that's a very tough annual to beat. It is definitely one of the best issues of superhero comics that have ever been created. I think it's fair to say. Um, and Wonder Woman says I mean, go to hell. I've never seen hell in a comic. Wonder Woman says go to hell and blast Mongol in the face with a big weapon. That comic was totally amazing. badass, and I was like eight or nine years amazing. old. Yeah. I um so I think that uh you'll you can go if you could go after we finish this and just tweet out your um your greatest picks for those Starlin comics I can retweet those and make sure that all of our listeners can see them and and and, and check them out, those out themselves um so let our listeners know uh, where they can find you on the internet and let's find your podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Colbrax, and you can find my podcast, Wrong Reel, on pretty much any of the normal platforms. But we also have a Facebook page and a Twitter profile just at Wrong Reel. And, yeah, you can uh, if you want to hear about all the cool stuff that was going on in The Wicker Man, just go back a few episodes, and you will see Ilana Levin's appearance there. But, yeah, we tackle everything from the silent era to the present day, and we do filmography episodes. We do themed episodes. We do just new reviews, like anything and everything film-related. We love to tackle that. And I have a YouTube channel called Geek and Mm-hmm. James Hancock, which is newer, but I tackle a lot of TV shows there. And also, if you like animation, swing over to iTunes and look up a little movie called Cop Dog. It's a new short film from animator Bill Plumpton. I'm one of the producers on it, and we're very proud of it. And it just launched yesterday. It's brand new, and it's the fifth movie in his series of dog films, and it's absolutely hysterical. So, any, folks, if you remember Liquid Television on MTV, then you've definitely seen Bill Plumpton's animation before. It's this gorgeous, manic like colored pencil, intense hand-drawn work, um, and it's unforgettable, and you guys should absolutely go and check out, check it out for sure. So that's Colbrax, spelled C-O-L-E-B-R-A-X, 
and wrong reel, as in the wrong and real, as in a film reel, are um, R E E L. Uh, yeah, so highly endorsed. I, I've really gotten a lot out of the episodes I've listened to, particularly a fan of the one where you guys talked about all the movies that are basically the, the thing and the movie The Thing itself. Definitely one of my favorite episodes. Um, yeah, Martin Kessler, he's great on that. Yeah, yeah, you have excellent guests. Excellent guests. Um, so, yes, thanks guys for listening. Uh, on Monday, I'll be back with uh, the actual spoiler-laden podcast episode discussing what did in fact happen in in the city wars i'm going to be joined by brandon david wilson i'm sorry david brandon wilson <laughs> and um going he's to a wrong real regular he's been on twice yes that's right he was on the show to talk about uh his to, to talk about sepulveda his uh his own movie absolutely and, i used um, to live on sepulveda so that was a lot of fun <laughs> he's such a cool dude and um Stephen Adwell, who is another friend of the show, who folks will recall from basically anything we do that has anything to do with Captain America. Um, Stephen will be joining us as well. So uh, those will be my guests to talk about the Infinity War on Monday night. And uh, the week after that, we'll be having some different guests on to talk about a new indie comic called The Pervert. Um, And that's going to be coming out on Image from Image Comics right around now, actually. Starring so, the in-betweener. Uh, yes, no, I mean, potentially. I'll ask her what she thinks about that. Uh, so thank you all for joining us. If you came into the episode late, you can always go and check it out on iTunes, under Graphic Policy, SoundCloud, Stitcher, on all those platforms. We'll be on those within the next couple of hours if we're not there yet. Uh, this is Graphic Policy again, graphicpolicy.com. I'm Ilana, um, Ilana underscore Brooklyn, E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn on Twitter. All the goddamn time is probably the easiest place to find me on the internet. And thank you for listening to Graphic Policy Radio. As we like to say, keep it geeky.